You are now listening to the JFDI Podcast. You're back with the JFDI Podcast with me, Hugh Mason, and Graham Brown. And with us in the studio today is Karen. Hi, I'm Karen Teo. I'm the COO of Commerce. It is a blockchain trade and finance platform for Africa and emerging markets. That's very succinct and doesn't capture actually the amazing thing about what you've done, Karen. We have heard so much about blockchain businesses and stuff in the last few years. You're actually shipping stuff, right? Can you give us a picture of what commerce does? Because I, I think people will be amazed when they realize the blockchain is actually powering real things. That is a very big ask. Usually when people ask me to do that, I usually have a, a presentation deck and 30 let me, minutes. Let me help you out. Uh, you've got someone in a developing world country that wants to ship a load of cooking oil to the country next door. And that is complicated for what kinds of reasons? Um, as an economist, we call them coordination costs. If you're a merchant, you'd be like paperwork, customs import forms, logistics. And this stuff matters because without trading with your neighbors, you can't create wealth in a country. You do. There is such a thing as the absolute factors of production. Guns and butter is probably what people are used to seeing in the economic standpoint. But the argument is you should do what you're good in. Your neighbor should do what they're good in and you should trade because everybody is better off because you produce more of that. So... For listeners at home who don't know Karen, what you're hearing, I think, already is someone who has thought incredibly de in detail about some of the things that we many of us take for granted, like buying and selling stuff. She has this weird combination of like a legal training, but you're also really, really interested in, in economics and particularly how that works through the blockchain. But what also inspires me about you as a friend, and we've been to disclosure here, we've known each other for maybe 10 years now, you are very purpose-driven. I... I Tell us about why you set up the business that you set up now. I remember you telling me a story about soon after your daughter was born. What was it that inspired you to get involved with all this stuff? Uh, full disclaimer, I'm having the, the, the female moment of, oh, I've got imposter syndrome. I can't possibly be that interesting. Uh, but I will try my best. Uh, what happened... As I was pregnant, I gave birth to my daughter in November 2015, was that the Turkish toddler Alan Kurdi had washed up on the beach. And he looked like he was asleep, but he was dead. And when you're pregnant, you have these huge wave of hormones. Everything is cuddly and furry and nice. And, you know, generally I'm quite grumpy, but, you know, I was, I was like, oh, I want to cuddle that. And, and I saw that and I, I just cried. I cried my eyes out because when you're pregnant, you have a tremendous empathy you're, you're, you're built for that. That's how we perpetuate ourselves as a species for, for, for small, cute, defenseless things because otherwise we eat our young. And can I say full disclosure as a white CIS male and also for Graham here, we talked about this story. Both of us remember this image. For anyone who hasn't seen, there's a tragic picture of this young kid washed up on a beach. Mm. And I remember when my son was born, I couldn't watch the news for about a week. It just all seemed too raw. It was too noisy, too angry. Now, most people kind of pass through that and get absorbed into the process of learning to be a parent for the first time. But you did something else with that energy. Well, then I gave birth to my daughter. It was not an easy birth. It was traumatic. The emergency C-section, the ER thing where they wheel you up with a gurney and you see the lights flash in front of your eyes. Yeah. 
And then when I'm weak from blood loss, I'm holding my daughter and she's, this tiny little life is asleep in exactly the same position as a toddler. And I, I just lose my shit. I'm, I'm howling my eyes out. It's in the middle of the night and my husband looks at me and he goes, what's wrong? And I'm, I think uh, it takes about half an hour to get it out of me, but I was like, the world is fucked up. Pardon my language. What have we done to this little life in our arms that there are other little lives that that will never see another sunrise? They won't have a chance to be held and grow up and grow old. And, and I thought, you know, it's a powerful impulse when you when you have a child. And and my thought was, okay, I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I am going to try to fix this. And I think commerce is is part of what we are trying to do. Um, then about two years ago, my the CEO of commerce, who is my law school classmate, I've known him for 20 years, he used my notes to pass and get better grades than I did. He rocked up and he said, this is blockchain and cryptocurrency thing. I think that we can use it to solve poverty and hunger in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was like, really? But we had to have a look at it, so I did. And I mean, I spent a lot of time looking at the underlying economics, how market mechanisms and forces work. And I think that we we really can. If we succeed at commerce, uh, we can make that a possibility that we can make a dent into poverty. We can restart markets because that's what we've geared up at commerce to do to actually fix the trust issue that prevent transactions from happening. When, when you don't have enough trust, you don't have enough information in the market, trades don't happen, economics don't happen, activity doesn't happen. And the clearest example of that, even in the developed world, is before Airbnb, none of us would ever go and stay at a stranger's house. And now we do. Mm. Because we know what the stranger looks like, we know what his house looks like, we know that other people have stayed there, and they've come out alive and they're not ex-murderers. Mm. And that's what information and and trust do. They they create markets literally out of nothing. That's and and that's what we are trying to do at Commerce. I mean, I, I think I'm sure Graham and our listeners will share. You know, thanks for sharing that story because what I admire so much, at the risk of embarrassing you further, is that you know you've actually taken a very powerful personal experience, and then you've applied not just your brain power, but also the formidable brain power of a bunch of other people. Commerce is part of a group called Community Ventures. It's a strange group of people. I mean, there's PhDs, there's technologists, there's there's lawyers, there's, and you're trying to look at how can we re- use technology to re-engineer trust to provide information in new ways. In practice, a simple situation that looks like shipping a, a load of cooking oil from one country to another involves all sorts of people trusting each other, doesn't it? Yes. Where did you start? I mean. So you're a lawyer, right? You hear about this. Your Harveen says to you, hey, there's this thing called blockchain. And you start thinking about that. <laughs> Tell us about what that was like to kind of say, okay, I've set myself this big target and I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to fix this stuff. It, it feels like lightning striking because I have a diversity of interests. I originally meant to become an economist. I actually had a place at Chicago to do very, very classical... Keen, 
neo-Keynesian free market economics. You could have destroyed the economy. Like, you could have been doing, like, collateral debt obligation stuff, but you uh, didn't. Uh, yes, but, well... There's an, there are all sorts of problems with economics as they're currently thought, but that is another day and that's another podcast. That's okay. probably another 10 podcasts mm. about why economics is broken. But And then I did law, which gives you... Law is actually applied engineering with words, except that you deal with people instead of things, and people lie, so you have unreliable information. And I did litigation, which is pure game theory, which is... How much pain can I inflict on the other side before they drop out and cry uncle? And how much do they likely have? So you make that calculus on a day-to-day basis going to court. And then I did tech product management, hardware and software for 10 years. So I've, done, I've worked with IDEs. I've worked with SVNs before GitHub's were a thing. Uh, I'm old school. <laughs> and in the midst of all of that, there's a bunch of very well-paid careers you could have done. And you chose to become an entrepreneur. Was that a conscious choice? Did it happen because of this mission? I'm going to shout out and say that that is privilege. I've been privileged to be able to do this because my family are very comfortable. Mm. It, 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 is a, it is the hidden safety net that people don't talk about when they're entrepreneurship. Most entrepreneurs come from very comfortable middle-class backgrounds where their parents have health insurance, they don't have to worry about their parents' retirement, they don't have to worry about other siblings. There is what I call a poverty trap of entrepreneurship. You need to be out of that poverty trap before you can even think about being an entrepreneur. And there are amazing, driven, wonderful people that overcome that poverty trap, but the reality is that the Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerbergs have an incredible advantage. I mean, people don't talk about it. Bill Gates' mother was on the board of IBM. Yeah. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's parents, I mean, they're orthopedic surgeons, so obviously, I mean, they're not super wealthy, but they are not hurting either. Yeah. And and maybe there's a resonance here with the business you've ended up creating, because I'm guessing that what, what commerce makes possible is for people who are honest and want to do business and want to create wealth for themselves, for their families, for their community, for their nation, you're giving them a platform that lets them trade fairly with each other you're actually empowering a load of entrepreneurs who perhaps not, might otherwise might not be able to, tr- to do their thing. So we work with SME entrepreneurs. It's a very, very diverse range because SMEs cover anything from one to 500 people. And certainly the merchants that we work with who can afford to bring in one container or even at the subcontainer levels, they are considered, I think, the top. They're not the top 1%, but they're definitely the top 5% of their societies. But what we do is where the banks don't give them the opportunity to extend, we work with them to extend, say, credit lines because they're, they're doing an honest business and they're succeeding. So I think, I mean, for anyone who's not familiar with this, particularly anyone who's listening outside, um, the, say, the Asia, for example, or developing world, one of the things you noticed, or I noticed when I came to Asia, was that in many of the family, in many of the countries around this region, the whole economy is dominated by a small number of families. There are a bunch of people, I mean, you know, a few, probably less than 100 in most countries. And those are the guys who have access to credit. They have access to the resources. They've got that, com- not just the comfort, they're actually very comfortable by this stage. And there's a whole lot of people who could be creating value in the economy, uh, but aren't able to. And you make that possible. Yes. I think it's not just making that possible at that tier, but making... I think, pervasive credit possible because every economic 
development cycle that we've seen in the past hundred years in China, in Japan, and Korea has been on the backs of credit. Hmm. The fact that they've had strong central governments that have been able to backstop that credit in terms of the import-export banks has made that possible. And when you have large-scale trade and credit available, China has single-handedly lifted 500 million people out of poverty in the last 40 years. That that is a staggering number. Hmm. And I think we can replicate that across the African continent in some of the starting with the biggest economies in Africa. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who's listening, I, I had a my son asked me the other day, you know, what is finance? And I said to him, you have this thing in the economy where you have you have people with lots of money and no time, <laughs> and you have people who've got lots of time and lots of capability, but they don't have any money. And I, the way I explained, I don't know what I was right, you, you know much more about this than me, I explained to him that finance is a thing that brings those together. So if you can bring the resources of one group of people to another group of people, and in together, they're then able to create value. That's how an economy grows, isn't it? <laughs> I'm asking you to condense down the whole of economics here to a statement. I, I think finance is matching the term mismatch of obligations. Okay. So you have people that are happy to lend out money for a long time at a certain interest rate and the people that need the money for a short time at a certain interest rate. And what intermediaries like banks, loan sharks, governments do is they they match that demand for resources. Even credit cards. Yes, credit cards are a form of finance Mm. across everybody on either side of that. And that's it. So what I think is so interesting there is inspired by the vision of that poor little boy. And his parents were, I don't know the story of that family, but I'm guessing they were economic migrants. Or were they escaping war? They were escaping Syria and they were economic migrants. They did have support from their family in Toronto. Their their aunt gave them, the boy's aunt gave them $5,000 to get to Europe. Right. And she feels terrible to this day because it's, it's what started the family's journey. Um, but I want to just bring back that the awful calculus, and those are financial decisions that people make when they're fleeing war zones or economic deprivation. You have the calculus of, do I get in a boat and possibly die? Or do I stay here and I will likely die? Mm. Uh, I think this is not a new problem. The Europeans dealt with it in the aftermath of World War II and, bef- and during. Um, the Vietnamese boat people dealt with it. I think I read uh, an account by Priscilla Chan, who is Mark Zuckerberg's wife, about the calculus that her grandparents made, where as Vietnamese boat people, her father was one of a pair that was matched with her aunt because they had to decide, do I put two of my kids in the same boat and lose them at the same time? Or do I pair them up with another family so the kids both have somebody they know and we only lose one kid on the same boat? It's just unimaginable to have to make that decision. That's Think- math and, and that's economics, but uh, it is not a sum that I hope that any of us will ever have to do. Yeah. And part of the reason why people flee their conditions for war is that Syria was actually a climate change issue. You had six years of drought. You didn't have enough resources to go around. And then people mistake those conditions for issues of political... I mean, it's all tied up. Mm. Scarcity breeds bad behaviour. Scarcity behavior. breeds bad behaviour. Mm. And 
I think that was unforgivable. We make enough food on earth to feed everybody. Most of our food goes to waste. Uh, I think that there is a chance that if everybody could get what they need through trade, we would not have that scarcity. And that is what commerce makes possible. We've got food, you've got resources in one place. Commerce, your business, makes it possible to get the stuff from where it is now to the other people who need it. So food costs in Africa are... An average African, even in Rwanda, spends 40% of their income on food. It's about $2 a day, $2 a meal for a family of four. Uh, That works out to about $60 uh, $60 a day and that's about 40% of your income there's mm. a video where our our VP of Africa goes to a Rwandan family that he knows and they feed him and they talk to the cost mm. and part of the reason is because trade is scarce uh, there's a demand for cooking oil they're net importers of cooking oil but you have high tariffs so the people that pay the pay the most actually earn the least they pay wholesale what we pay retail Um, the cost of oil in Kinshasa landed is three times what I pay at the factory here. Mm. So what what I like about what you've done is inspired by a personal moment of insight, you've gone back to the very foundations of what it is that creates wealth in society. You've applied your brain power to it and you've brought together other people who've got complementary kinds of brain power. You're all bound by this vision. You know why you're doing it. You absolutely know why you're doing it. It's encapsulated in that one picture of the boy on the beach. How you do it, you've worked out together. Tell me about what it was like to try and bring together with people with different skills. Because we have these different tribes, don't we? We've got the lawyers, we've got the crypto people, we've got the technologists. You've managed to bring those people together to do something incredible. Was that easy? (laughs) He says, knowingly. I think it is easier for me than most because I spent a large part of my career in tech product management working closely with engineers. I've been the UX tester. I break systems. (laughs) I've done the reports for why it doesn't work with detailed screenshots on how to fix it. And, you know, I've, I've walked the talk. So I have a respect for the work that's done and the engineering necessary to do it. I and that's enabled me to so I did also spend about a year headhunting where I worked with C to C minus three appointments mostly on tech on how to recruit so I can look at a CV with asymmetric information and go something's off or that guy's fine and then I usually walk so I understand what makes a good technology and what doesn't but what has been the common factor in commerce is I've the group gelled together and then I looked at what made us common so we actually have a culture statement about what the six keystones are in order to work with us long term and I've actually set it up on a game theory basis for us to play repeat games uh, with the lowest transaction cost for each game so I mean if I have time do I have enough time to go into that to share us the six yeah, so I've got six. Principles? So I have, uh, what I do have is a true north. Everybody has to have a true north. They have to have their line in their sand. What that enables is that you're not going to be screwed over for cheap. Your cost of defection is a lot higher. So it's not going to be, 
I feel I feel good. I've got deep, some sort of deep knowing insecurity. I'm going to screw you over for this to earn cheap points for so cheap prices. So you create a climate of there was that thing in Google, wasn't they? Looked in what makes the perfect team, and they said it was about psychological safety was the way they expressed it. Knowing that, knowing that you're in a safe space, is that what you're talking about there? Uh, I think the safe space comes closer on, but this is the motivation for people to be able to create that safe space. So. Okay. They have they have a price. They have a certain amount of integrity. The next thing I look f- is for impact, where in their CV or in their personal life they they give. So some of it's community uh, contribution to community. Do you rescue animals? Do you uh, save the earth? Do you work in environmental? And those are some of the things that our team members do. Are you active in your faith community? Uh, because what that selects for, on top of personal generosity, is actually, in game theory, there are people that give us, take us, and match us in terms of archetypes. This is from Adam Grant. The Adam Grant's Give and Take. Yeah, and I've um, read the book. It's a fantastic book. It is a fantastic book. I've been uh, shoving it at anybody and everybody. But at a game theory level, and you'll see the effects in Nikki Case's, I think, altruism, is that the moment you have takers or you have matches, it drives the givers away. And then the enforcement cost of making sure you get value out of people suddenly shoot up. So you're never going to have a, an environment where people can give and give freely and not count. You're always going to have a thing where I gave you this, you gave me that. that that's overhead. That's, that's a transaction cost. Mm. And then you have to keep score, which is a pain. And that's why big companies have employee rankings, stack ranking, all that stuff to try and enforce a set of rules because basically the people are not bound together by values in most large corporations. It's very hard to do that with a large business, isn't it? Well, it is a strategic advantage. Uh, Very few companies have managed to do it. The only time I've seen it done is at Netflix and even they have had growing pains in the last 18 months when they've doubled up. So what I'm going to suggest you, we've had two of the core values there and there's so much of your experience that's really interesting and we've probably only got half an hour or so for this podcast. So if we stick with those two values at the moment and and we'll come back to the others in another conversation, I hope. When you try and bring together these different tribes of people, you're bound together by a set of values. So you might be a technologist, but as long as you share these values, that's great, we can work with you. As if you're a lawyer, but you share these values, we can work with you. On a practical level, how does that work? Do you spend time as a group talking about those values? And I'm really interested because our previous interviewee, M- M- Margaret Manning, uh, spoke a lot about culture and how is that she managed to grow a business to about 300 people in total. And, and culture, not sort of business models or anything else, was the, was the key for her. And that's exactly what you're saying. In practice, how do you begin doing that? What I do is I actually have very, very detailed conversations with the people that we hire, we work with. So it's very much a, I'll do an interview, I'll do a deep dive into your CV, I'll ask you what you did, when you did, uh, but, and then even before you start, I'll have a, had a look at your CV and I'll ask people for references. And I will ask, they did this, they got fired, why did they get fired? Was it a teachable moment? What were the issues? I actually don't regard people being fired or let go as a bad thing. Sometimes their culture mismatches and everybody makes mistakes, especially if people are early in the career. What I do need to know is the culture of the firm that they worked with. And so I'll give you an example. Um, we have an amazing young person that we're working with. 
he has an unorthodox background. Uh, he was let go from a project. The project still wasn't positive about him, but they acknowledged that he was very good at what he did. And then I asked what happened, and he had apparently had recorded it across uh, social media about what he did and why he did it. And then I pointed out to him, did they ever tell you the consequences of what you're doing for the company? And no, they just said this. And I checked with the company, and yes, they said this. Don't do this, is what they said. And I said, well, this is why you don't do this. And he was absolutely horrified. We practice this where we ask people to exercise their judgment, but we give them full context. So I'm not interested in people obeying or disobeying. I'm interested in people understanding the context of what they need to accomplish and why. So there's a, <clears throat> that's a fantastic insight to the way you select people. On a practical level, I think a lot of people um, who are used to working in a traditional environment would say, if we have to be mindful together, because what you just talked about sort of sounds like making people mindful of, of themselves and mindful of the group that they're part of. It sounds, from a traditional business perspective, it sounds like that could be a very expensive kind of overhead for a business. But I'm also hearing you saying that if you get the selection right and people are aligned on values, then you don't have to, it doesn't turn into a giant therapy session every day. You just, everyone's getting on with their thing because they're all aligned on what they're trying to achieve. Is, am I hearing that correctly? Yes, pretty much. Um, we have very loose control. We maybe have a meeting every two weeks to update people on what we're working in. Uh, for operational things, it's a weekly thing with the small group that people are working in. But really, there's no micromanagement. Everybody just goes off and does their own thing. And I think that's the future of work. I think that is the future of where companies are going because creative problem solving and engineering are, are how you create value, not writing one more report that nobody sees. You actually have to understand the problem and, and fix it. And again, I'm fascinated to hear you say this because our, our in, first in of these three interviews with female entrepreneurs, Margaret Manning set up a .com 1.0 business at the point when there were only about 40 websites in the world, right? She, and... I feel that what you guys did was to set up a basically crypto blockchain enabled business with a very strong set of values, just like Margaret had. And you're right at the beginning of a thing that could be just like .com 1.0. It could be transformational, not just in terms of the technology we use, but also the way that technology impacts society. Uh, I... You you could keep me on here for the next 24 hours talking about how crypto and blockchain are going to make a difference to our societies. I can't explain why it's going to make a difference. It changes the underlying economics of information. It solves the very difficult problem in economics called the cost of state verification by Robert Townsend, where you have information that's critical for a business, but acquiring that information or verifying it is expensive. Like, did you pay uh, my bank and then somebody with the right keys to it will have to go check out with the bank or somebody with the right phone number will have to go check out with the bank and some, or somebody will have to wait for the statement to come. And that takes time hmm. and it takes effort and energy. And computers can sort of solve it, but there are always edge cases. And that cost of state verification is something that plagues every transaction between a human, hmm. even even our social interactions. How do I know uh, who you say you are? 
So I'm going to ask a question now as we draw this to a close and say, um, we've lived through the first initial enthusiasm for blockchain and crypto stuff, and we were all told it was going to change the world. And then a bunch of, sort of speculators came in and it and it went into winter. And I kind of see a parallel there with the, the dot-com 1.0 boom, where we had a whole load of stuff that was, the internet was going to change the world. A load of speculators came in and then things went bust. And then the true solution started emerging. There isn't time to go into what, you know, a speculation about what might emerge in terms of what kinds of businesses. But when you look back on your experience as being a business that is, you know, one of crypto 1.0, you know, you guys have actually done it. You're there. You're surviving as we come out of crypto winter now, as they call it. And we start, we're going to start seeing the real fruits of blockchain causing transformation. Is there one message you'd give for anyone out there who's thinking about moving beyond just talking about blockchain and and trying to actually change the world. What's the, the most significant lesson you've learned so far? I'd probably say the most significant lesson is don't lie. <laughs> Just, yeah, build. Be straight. Be straight. Be straight, well. What a fantastic note to end. I mean, that's a fantastically succinct and fantastically true way to end this. Thank you for sharing so much personally and thank you for sharing so many tales. I know many people listening will be fascinated to follow up on some of the things that you've touched on. Um, I think what Karen is doing is, and her colleagues are doing, is re-engineering some of the very basic things we take for granted about the way that transactions happen between human beings. And that's not an easy subject. It's a mixture of psychology, economics. Behavioral economics. economics. I'm actually thinking about yeah. doing a PhD in that. I've started looking at applying to PhD programs. <laughs> so can I ask a favor, which is that um, we won't put it here. We'll post up alongside this a, a list of, say, three books for the people who might want to read your favorite three books. Mm -hmm. We'll do that. Graham, Manu, any thoughts from you? Very good. Well, we'll, we'll wind it up. Thank you so much. And if you want to watch this, uh, this space, then keep watching commerce.com. That's commerce with a K. But also do stick with us in this series because we have the last of our run of three female entrepreneurs coming up shortly. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the JFDI podcast. Hope you have enjoyed this episode.